Welcome to Love Notes from a Soul Coach, the podcast where we don't shy away from the difficult topics. We dive deep and explore what it means to genuinely, authentically heal. I'm your host, Mary, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's show. Oh, hello, friends. I've been so saddened by the news that Sinead O'Connor died last week. I was already working on a different theme for today's show when the news broke, and I debated about whether or not to abandon what I was working on to talk about Sinead instead, especially because there's been such a huge outpouring of stories and coverage, and you might be feeling saturated from all of it by now. Also, if her music wasn't your jam, you might not grasp why her passing has been such a big deal for a lot of people, but there is so much about Sinead's life and her struggles that directly relates to what this show is about. So I did want to use our time together to unpack this a bit more. I had a meditation teacher who used to say, it's our pain that brings us to the cushion, meaning the passion to solve our suffering is born of how unbearable our suffering feels to us. It's a specific kind of passion. It's the passion that insists this way of life cannot be all there is. There must be more. There must be a way to change what feels unacceptable. And I think Sinead was a person who experienced a tremendous amount of both pain and that passion that desire to transmute her pain into some kind of freedom. I was 15 when Sinead's debut album came out. My parents had been divorced for about two years, and I was deep in the process of outgrowing my younger adolescent identity while still grasping for whatever was meant to take its place. A little lost, you could say. A little overwhelmed. I didn't have the language for what I was feeling during those years. My nuclear family had collapsed in this really gnarly, awful way. My dad had moved to California to heal, and it wasn't clear if he was going to come back again. He'd lost a dramatic amount of weight, and I remember feeling like he was literally disappearing from my life, like he was going to die, and I had so much anger toward my mom who initiated the divorce because of it. And my thinking was very black and white and young and traumatized. There was a good guy and a bad guy in my story. And that was pretty much it. There were no shades of gray. Also, my dad began relating to me as a confidant. He would call on the phone and tell me things about how much pain he was in, about how much he didn't want the divorce. He would talk a lot about my mom. And this was both delicious to me to be considered old enough at 12 or 13 to be like the president's close trusted advisor. And also it caused me immense distress and self-loathing because it is impossible for a child to hate a parent without hating some part of themselves at the same time. And when we, as parents, as grown-ups, expose our children to our own darknesses, we teach them that they are not worth protecting. 
We aren't casually destructive with things we value. So when a child gets tossed around in their parents' dysfunction with little to no regard, the child intuits, I'm not worth protecting. A child should never, ever be in the trenches with their parents' stuff. Never. So I had a tremendous amount of rage as I segued into my teenage years, but it was very hard for me to locate it. It was more intellectualized. Most of my memories from that time are of just being kind of ongoingly numb, like the feeling that you have when you first wake up and you're not totally sure what's going on. And it's like, oh, right, my body, I have a body and, and these walls, yes, this is where I live. And okay, what time is it? What am I supposed to be doing? And you just slowly shake off the fog and get with the program. But I really struggled to shake off the fog. I struggled to feel embodied. It's still something that comes up for me. I think a lot of these early responses from the body to things that feel like too much to deal with become the go-to response for us moving forward. When I'm overwhelmed in my adult life, the first thing that happens is I lose my body. The difference is I know that this is my default mode. So I can look for it and I can work with myself lovingly to come back when it happens. This is the power of self-awareness that we talk so much about here. We aren't expecting to heal our pain and then never have to deal with it again. The expectation of healing is more realistic and pragmatic than that. It's the notion that our stuff will still get activated. Our habitual responses will kick in, but we'll have this self-witnessing component within ourselves, this hard-fought tool that allows us to see what's happening as it's happening and to respond thoughtfully and wisely instead of going out to see with it. So when I started high school, which feels like a million years ago now, we moved to a new house with my stepfather and it was the shortest, longest move. It was short in terms of distance because the new house was less than a mile from the old one and long in terms of what a giant leap it was to go from living in a shoebox with a leaky basement where you could be in your bedroom and hear someone clear their throat in the kitchen to living in a three-story Victorian on the Charles River where we could all be in the same house together and have no idea anyone else was home. It was a big adjustment. It felt exciting and it also felt empty, abundant and lonely at the same time. I got involved with the drama department at school and it became a really important part of my life. I started to experiment with voice and with the notion of cultivating presence on stage, being embodied, which was the opposite of how the wound was running me back then. I started learning to use my body as a vehicle for expression, using my voice to express clearly, intentionally, compellingly, It felt like an outlet and also like a place where I could meaningfully work through all the identity stuff and the heavy inner emotional landscape that was part of the age and stage of life I was in. And I made a friend who was a few years older than me and she had a car which changed everything. A car in the suburbs is a really big deal. So she would give me rides back home after school, after rehearsals. But what she was really giving me 
was an education in music. She was introducing me to this other world where everything was alive and on fire and spoke directly to my soul. She was giving me the medicine. That was where I first heard the likes of The Smiths and The Cure and Depeche Mode and Susie and the Banshees and, of course, Sinead. Right away, I connected with Sinead's music. There was this immediacy to it that I've heard so many other people talking about in their eulogies of her. I didn't understand at the time that what I was connecting with was the rawness of her pain. She could move from a whisper to a howl the way a bird takes flight with no runway. She had this gentleness and this ferocity. And maybe it was the first time I was discovering that a woman could have both that we don't have to choose one or the other, that they can actually coexist. You can be tender as a woman and also as powerful as a thunderstorm. Chrissy Hind in her eulogy online for Sinead mentioned that while everyone is feeling sad for her death, Chrissy felt sad for her life. And that's very much what I've been feeling too. And maybe why her death feels so devastating because it highlights all the suffering in her life that couldn't be redeemed. We don't outgrow our childhood wounds like old shoes. We integrate them. They inform so much in our lives. It's never as simple as, well, I am who I am. You know, Sinead wasn't just an incredible talent or a trailblazer or a rebel or a feminist or an outspoken troublemaker. She was also an abused child. And that piece played a huge role in the way her path unfolded, as it does for all of us who've grown from difficult childhoods. I'm not saying this in a negative, inevitable kind of way. I'm saying the impact of childhood on who we become as adults is real and legitimate. And if we fail to connect those dots, we will be likely to misunderstand our pain and blame ourselves or pathologize ourselves in ways that work against our healing instead of in service of it. Fame is a disaster for an abused child. It's like an example on a large scale of what so many of us experience on a smaller, more personal level where we want another person's love and approval and adoration to make us better, to fill in the void of our pain. But of course, healing doesn't work this way. No one else's love can quote-unquote fix us. This is one of the big paradoxes of the human condition. We are creatures of connection. We need connection with others. And yet, another person's love is only ever the finger pointing at the moon, as we say in Buddhism. It's not the moon itself. Another person's love and acceptance of us can serve as proof or a reminder that yes, we are worthy of love and acceptance. It can inspire us and touch us and help us profoundly to shift out of a stuck place into an open one. But the alchemical process of moving from feeling broken to whole again, of relearning our loveliness and our worthiness, doesn't happen through a dependency on another person's feelings about us. That's too conditional, too flimsy. The real transformative healing comes when we learn to love and accept ourselves directly, when we become our own moons, when we figure out how to turn that light on within ourselves, 
regardless of how long it's been dark in there. Morrissey wrote of Sinead's passing, The cruel playpen of fame gushes with praise for Sinead today, with the usual moronic labels of icon and legend. You praise her now only because it is too late. You hadn't the guts to support her when she was alive, and she was looking for you. There are people in our lives looking for us right now, looking to us for support, for reassurance, for proof of their own inherent worthiness. Some of these people exist inside our circle of friends or inside our own family systems, and some are complete strangers to us. We will intersect with them in simple, ordinary ways and never know how our small kindnesses impacted them. Holding the door, meeting someone's glance, taking the time to actually listen to the response when we ask, how are you? I'm not saying any of these would have been enough to save Sinead's life. I'm not prescribing, I'm just reflecting on the role that support plays in the lives of those who are hurting and how often we make the idea of support this complicated thing that should be outsourced to the professionals. And maybe it should in some situations, but also we are capable of supporting one another in so many other everyday ways that should not be underestimated. We must never underestimate the role of small kindnesses from one human being to another and how much it means to someone to come into contact with the balm of kindness when they're hurting. I want to close out with a passage from Ross Gay's book, The Book of Delights, that addresses the same idea more eloquently. And just to say thank you to Sinead for your bravery and your example and the gift of your voice in my life. And I deeply hope that your soul is at peace now. You gave so much to so many. Your life mattered. Every life matters. Okay, here's something for all of us as a beautiful reminder from the Book of Delights. every instance of our lives, our social lives, we are, if we pay attention, in the midst of an almost constant, if subtle, caretaking. Holding open doors, offering elbows at crosswalks, letting someone else go first, helping with the heavy bags, reaching what's too high or what's been dropped, pulling someone back to their feet, stopping at the car wreck, at the struck dog, the alternating merge, also known as the zipper. This caretaking is our default mode, and it's always a lie that convinces us to act or believe otherwise. Always. Thanks for spending the time with me today. And if you heard something that resonated, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast so it can find its way to other ears out there. To learn more about my work and my latest offerings, visit me at marywelch.com or on Instagram at marywelchofficial. 
Till next time, friends.